Let's talk development. Episode 9. This is Ijaz Nabi. I'm the Executive Director of the Consortium for Development Policy Research, CTPR. Uh, today, um, I'm having a discussion with the author of this book, which has made uh, quite a name for itself. It, the book is titled India is Broken A People Betrayed Independence to Today. The book has been uh, published by Stanford University Press, uh, and I will now introduce Dr. Ashoka Modi. Ashok is a very prominent Indian economist. He's had a long career, long international career. He's also worked in India. Uh, he was at the World Bank uh, for many years. Then he moved to the IMF, and the last position he held there was his deputy director uh, for research. Uh, since then, uh, Ashok uh, uh, has has taught at the at the Wharton School, and then most recently uh, as a professor at Princeton University. So Ashoka comes with a very rich. Uh, background as an economist. So what Ashoka has to say really matters. As we've seen from the reaction to Ashoka's writings uh, recently in India. So Ashok, let me start off by first thanking you for giving us the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, you're a busy man and and uh, much in demand because of the, your recent writings. Your book, India is Broken, uh, will be received in, with very sort of mixed kind of reactions uh, in Pakistan. I know that the reaction that it has received in India, by and large, most of our uh, economists, most of our common friends have not reacted very well uh, to your observations. But in Pakistan, it, it, it's, it's very interesting because the general impression in Pakistan is that India has gone from strength to strength. Uh, of course, we compare India's performance with ours, uh, at least the economic performance, and we feel that India has gone from strength to strength. Uh, and the indicator that matters to us most these days is uh, reserves. Uh, our reserves are at uh, are, are below critical minimum, uh, whereas India's are uh, are huge by comparison, uh, um, in uh, hundreds of billions. Dollars. What's the, what's the latest uh, number on India reserves, Ashok? I don't follow this number. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, okay. So it's an interesting number, but uh, it's not really anywhere near danger level. And for me, there are many more important things to right. worry about. Right. So, so, so India's reserves are high. India's uh, currency is stable. The, the inflation rate is relatively low. These are the metrics by which we are assessing Pakistan these days. And on these metrics, India looks very good. But beyond that, India looks terrific. Uh, many, many international CEOs now are leading the world's largest companies, the most dynamic companies, Indian diaspora um, in, in the UK and in the United States is doing exceptionally well. The IIT graduates uh, have really made a name for themselves in the world, and India's image uh, has changed uh, from uh, an impoverished country to to a to a techie society, uh, and therefore world's expectations of where India is going are very high, uh, as are the expectations of many Indians. 
what Ashok has done in his book is to question that. He calls it a hype. He calls it unsustainable. He calls it uh, being preoccupied with the wrong matrix, etc. But we'll come to the matrix issue later. But first, Ashok, do you disagree with the general perception that India is going from strength to strength? So first of all, Ijaz, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Uh, I also just, if you don't mind, want to qualify something you said very quickly in passing, which is that most economists have some disagreement with my book. Uh, yes, it is true that the economists you and I know uh, have a disagreement with this book, but this book has been extremely well reviewed uh, both internationally and domestically, uh, both for its writing as well as for its analysis and what it works for our many of your listeners in Pakistan will recognize put on his summer reading list as one of the best books for the summer. And he described in the opening sentence of his blog was Modi's modern and intellectual courage on extraordinary. So I, I don't want to start on the back foot over here, so to I, 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 let me Let me correct uh, any uh, misperception uh, that I might have uh, conveyed. Uh, it is an it is an it is a tour de force. It's a great book to read, uh, both in terms of literary style as well as facts and analysis. Uh, uh, Ashok has conveyed uh, complex concepts in economics uh, in a way that most people can understand, and enriched it with uh, uh, with with daily life experiences uh, in a way that I've seen very few books do. So I, there's no question about. Uh, the uniqueness of this book, as as uh, in terms of its its accessibility, etc., and I completely agree with you. Uh, I should have said many economists that you and I know, uh, as opposed to the broader sweep of economists, because I know that uh, Bernard Burden, uh, Amartya Sen, uh, and many many other prominent economists would be in complete agreement with most of what you have said. So let's yeah, very good. So so in fact that's a distinction we might want to talk about in a minute. But let me say what is the central thesis of my book? Uh, rather than telling you why the right is wrong. I say right at the beginning of my book that if we are interested in economic development. The right metric of economic development is whether people have jobs, dignified jobs, honorable jobs, where they have a sense that they have some security in life, some prospect of upward mobility of their children. By that metric, India has failed for the last 75 years. I think that India has now reached a point where the jobs challenge is almost insurmountable. I can we can talk about the numbers in a second. That's number one. Number two is the failure of public groups. So my analysis of economic development is does a society 
give its people a lived reality where they have jobs, where they have public goods such as education, health, they live in workable cities, they encounter a judicial system that is fair and responsive, and they live in a society which cares about its environment rather than abusing the environment in ways that that harm the vulnerable the most. By those metrics, India has done poorly over the last 75 years, notwithstanding all the digitization and so on. In a way, the digitization and stuff, particularly in recent years, has been a distraction to take the eye away from these core development needs. And a third, so there's jobs, there's public groups, and the third land below all of this. And this is where the contribution to economic development theory comes in, is the notion of eroding social norms and public accountability. A society that doesn't, where the norms are beginning to break down and the accountability is beginning to break down is a society that can fall into what I call a bad equilibrium. So Patkadas Gupta of Cambridge University says that if I expect the others are going to cheat you, then it is at my self-interest to cheat them. And a society that falls into that way of thinking, in that society, trust and cooperation disappear, and the ability to provide public goods in a cooperative manner where you and I believe that we are each acting in good faith, that disappears. And hence the perpetual lack of public goods and hence the perpetual lack of the lived reality of people. The India that you see and you describe in these brief words that you hear opening and which the, the Western world sees is what I sort of somewhat pejoratively call the Thomas Friedman style of journalism, which is that Thomas Friedman comes to Bangalore, he meets Nandan Milikani, Nandan Milikani gives him a tour of emphasis, he's dazzled by that tour, he writes a book called The Earth is Flat, and he goes in a curated tour by organized by Milikani and his buddies, and he goes back and says, wow, India is doing really well. He will throw in an anecdote about toilets and so on. But does any one of them, when, when Morgan Stanley says this is India's century, ask yourself the question, you get that report, is there any reference to jobs? Is there any reference to the quality of education, to the quality of health, the broken judicial system, the rampant abuse of the environment? That is the future. Is broken in the sense it has set itself up in a way that it's going to find it extremely hard to deal with the next generation of problems that are knocking on its doors right now. Uh, Ashok, uh, you've taken us much further down the road of the, the way I have structured the conversation. Um, you know, I, I, when I worked at the World Bank, several years ago, um, 
we used to report uh, SDGs on countries. And at that time, we were motivated by how well the country is doing. Uh, we were motivated to look for SDG performance in assessing uh, countries and not and just SDGs, just what SDGs? Sustainable Development Goals. So, oh. so, so we looked at a broad measure, uh, a number of uh, uh, variables to assess overall economic performance. And a lot of those variables include uh, the variables that you write in your in your book. It's education, it's health, it's access to other services, etc. And mm-hmm. and this was a period when India's growth rate was really skyrocketing, eight percent per annum for many many years. And I remember Indian officials telling the World Bank that. There's something wrong with the SDGs. You are not measuring India's welfare properly because you are ignoring our GDP growth rate. Uh, no. You you are saying that there's something, you're arguing completely the opposite, that there's something wrong in just being fixated on GDP and the numbers that I, the macro numbers that I quoted earlier, that the real numbers to look at are the broader numbers which are indicative of how well the lower 40% of the population is doing. Not just the lower 40% pages. Not just the lower 40%. Let me come to that in a second. But let me give you a little anecdote. Uh, President Joe Biden, State of the Union address, the most recent one, he used the word jobs 43 times. Did you hear them say GDP growth? No. Your the, the, the GDP growth obsession is a very Indian obsession. In the politi- in U.S. politics, no one cares about GDP growth. Everyone, the only headline is jobs. Everyone is looking at every indicator, metric, or jobs. Because that is where the reality of people is. What what does somebody care? You go into the neighborhood, even in affluent neighborhoods like mine. Does anybody know what the GDP growth is? Everyone knows what the unemployment rate is. We we have we have we as as intellectual leaders have created a narrative that is centered around GDP growth because we want to avoid dealing with the hard part of development. The GDP growth that India experienced was a bubble. Was a bubble. First, from 1999 to 2008, world trade was growing on steroids. And that rising tide lifted all boats. There was nothing unique about India. India grew very rapidly, yes. But look at how some other countries grew during that period, particularly in East Asia. Thereafter, from 2009 to 2018, the growth continued in what I call a finance construction bubbles. bubble. Through this period, India has had a less than 2% share of global exports in manufacturing goods. But the financial sector has grown. 
when when people look at India's growth, they look at GDP growth. You ask yourself, just where did that damn GDP growth come from? It came from the financial and real estate sectors. What does what does that do for people? Finance barely employs people. You set up an office in Nariman Point with three people, and you can generate gobs of GDP. Okay, that that also shows up in high productivity for heaven's sake. And then you have construction. Construction, yes, there are now jobs for unskilled people, precarious jobs. I'm not dismissing them. What I am saying is that those are the hardest jobs, in the sense of how how physically as well as economically hard they are on people who work there. Okay, so good. Some job is better than none. But is that is that the society you want? Today, India has more construction workers than workers in manufacturing in the manufacturing sector. How have the East Asians grown? They have grown through employing people in manufacturing for exports to world markets. Therefore, you you can't just look. The problem with GDP is it it's one number, it's one number. It doesn't tell you what the composition is and how it is filtering down to people. Right, uh, but Shok, you have also said uh, clearly written in the book, but also in your subsequent interviews that uh, you know some of the more prominent prime ministers of India, like uh, Jawaharlal Nehru and uh, Narendra Modi, they have all failed India in the sense in which you are talking about India being broken. And yet, you know, if you look at Nehru period, uh, it was a period in which uh, uh, large-scale um, engineering industry got established. Uh, the IIT got established, uh, and and the world and and also many Pakistanis look to that as a as a huge achievement. Uh, and when when you look at uh, uh, Modi's period, uh, you see India being invited to Washington, and it was very interesting to see that Mr. Modi was being fitted uh, uh, just like Ayub Khan was fitted in Washington when he arrived in the fifties. Because Washington wanted uh, Pakistan to join uh, the CENTO uh, arrangement, uh, so it's, it's 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 very interesting to see the parallels there. So when you look at how the world is reacting to India, and when you look at some of the big uh, policy decisions that were taken, uh, how would you? Why should the reader believe uh, your assertion that uh, these these uh, prime ministers have failed it? I'm just asking you is to look at the condition of, of the job market in India. I give you one anecdote and I can give you a thousand such anecdotes. In in 2019, the Indian Railways advertised 35,000 job openings. 12 and a half million people in, uh, applied for it. In other words, for every one person who would eventually get a job, 350 would not. This is a common ratio. In fact, sometimes it gets worse. A thousand people will apply for one job. In 2022, the railway said, oops, sorry, 
we are not yet ready to keep moving those 35,000 jobs. There were riots in Bihar and Uttar Pradesh. This is the daily story. You go on to the streets. I'm asking you for a minute, Ijaz, to move away from the Thomas Friedman style of journalism, which is what you are talking about. I'm asking you to go into the reality of people. I, I hope you, you understand that I'm playing the devil's advocate. I'm In many ways, I'm in agreement with what you were saying, but uh, but I'm presenting the popular... Don't use the word popular. You're using a very elite narrative. Yes. It is not a popular narrative, Rajas. It is a narrative run by the very elite who have a voice in the international media. And it is beaten up and drummed up by parties who have a self-interest in, in touting this success. Go, go just one layer below that. Go just one layer below that and ask yourself, on the jobs front, on the education front, even the economist, which now did arrive few months ago, India's moment, has now a piece on the abysmal state of Indian education. 75 years after independence, you talked about IIT just, I'm from an IIT. My wife is from an IIT. My sons look up to us because we are from an IIT. IIT has a global brand name. My sons will tell their friends, my parents, our parents are from IITs. And I ask myself, I went to an IIT, how many kids did not go to primary school? How, so you're many, saying, kids do not, how many kids do not have primary health? So, she, so you're saying having a few sent islands of excellence is not the, the, the correct response to the needs of a country like India and by extension uh, to the needs of a country like Pakistan. Look at the numbers, Ijar. Always look at the numbers. IIT Kikikmi graduate Abstar. What is the size of the population that is looking for education? You are seeing those 30,000 people because you're dealing with them. They are in Silicon Valley. They are in the, in the, in the World Bank, in the IMF. So you, you they will read that as India. No, that is not India, Ajaz. Yeah. Let me share... I, I, I'll tell you, just, just in yeah. Delhi government school, my mother used to tutor a kid in a, in a Delhi government school. And... After she passed away, I occasionally talk to her on WhatsApp. And she says to many classmates, this is Delhi government, a Delhi government that doubts improvement in education. Many classmates said, students are Madam, 10 minutes are late. After that, she has to open the internet for 10 minutes. Then she has to open the answer from Google and she has to go to 10 minutes. 
you're describing government schools in Pakistan. Well, what I'm telling you is, this is a school in a high-income neighborhood in Delhi. Um, I, I I shared with you when we when we met and talked an image uh, from my visit to China when it was just opening up in the early nineties. I think it was ninety three. Uh, China was nothing like what it is today in terms of, you know, the share of world's exports, uh, etc. The amount of FDI that goes into China, uh, the sophisticated products it produces. It was just beginning to open up. And I remember looking at the Chinese workforce and being struck by how capable ordinary citizens looked. They, they were healthy, they were strong, men and women uh, on their bikes, pedaling away to, their, to the local factories to work, inefficient factories at that time. But I, the question I kept asking no. myself was, how long before China becomes a dynamic world economy? Because the people are ready for that. I don't get that impression. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that impression for the many years I worked on India and traveled extensively. I didn't think the ordinary Indian citizen was ready to be an engine of productivity on the world stage like the Chinese uh, was. And I certainly don't get that impression when I look at uh, the Pakistani workers. Uh, and what you are saying is that it is this contrast between China and, and, and India and Pakistan, and I will talk about Bangladesh in a minute, which shows the relative failure of, of, of Pakistan and India and uh, uh, compared to to China, and therefore the expectation that this is worth this is India's century, is based on somewhat shaky ground. Yeah. So, you know, our, our once prominent lawyer, the World Bank, did its first mission in China in 1981. I don't know if some of our common friends were also on that machine. And they wrote a massive report, which then the bank made public in 1983. And you can read that report and understand everything that you just described about China. It said the Chinese have an excellent education system at the primary level. The Chinese have an excellent primary health system. Their children are well nourished and they have paid particular attention to their women. Contemporaneously, remember China came out of the communist years backward in many ways. But communist years produced this kernel of human capital. Plus, Mao Zedong often used the phrase women hold up half the sky. And yes. a very significant part of my book is the way in, the, in Indian society and Indian workplace has treated women. In 1981, by that time, women were 
an important part of the Chinese workforce, and they were an important part of the Chinese Communist Party. Yes, women are still battling for their rights in China, just as everywhere else, but women have made much greater progress in China than in India. Why is, why, is, why is women important? I'll just say one thing before we move on. Women are important because when women go into the workplace, the record since the, since the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th century, when women go into the workforce, they have fewer children, they invest more in educating their children, they invest more in better child-rearing practices, that is the engine of productivity growth. There is an equity aspect, gender equity aspect, which I care about. But as an economist, I also care about the fact that bringing women into the workforce is not just a matter of equity. It is the engine of long-term productivity growth. And so the East Asians got that right. We, we Indians look at China and say, how do authoritarian they were? Or they did some, some market reforms in yoga. Indians choose to not look at the fact that China developed in world-class human capital. As, as, as you quite rightly pointed out, uh, did East Asia and Malaysia country I know very well. Their, their, their secret to success was eradicating the differences in education between the Chinese and the Malays and bringing Malay women into the workforce. That was it. it that completely transformed that society. Uh, Ashok, a very famous Indian uh, Pakistani poet, uh, Fahmida Riyaz, uh, she went to Delhi and <laughs> she was at a mushaira. And this is after India was going through its uh, not, so, uh, not so desirable changes, uh, you know, into the... the so the Indian politics had changed. The, the secular democratic tradition um, laid by Nehru was beginning to be eroded. And she went there and she wrote, read out this poem. The title was Tum to Bilkul Ham Jaise Nikle. So, female labor for participation rate, I recently looked at the data. Uh, uh, and I was going to present India as a contrast to Pakistan in terms of female labor force participation rate. It was identical, 23%, the same as in Pakistan. And I was, uh, so, you know, your, your book has resonance uh, with me ever since I started to probe the numbers a little more carefully because uh, hey, you cannot you cannot uh, become a, a huge, dynamic, successful society uh, at the world stage if your uh, education systems are, are failing, as you describe in your book, and if uh, women are not participating, participating in the labor force. So I just wanted to share with you my own experience of... of, of yeah, so I will just, you know, there's one sound bite that this discussion between you and I um, at least worth remembering is that since the Industrial Revolution, 
150 years ago, there is no, there is no country, there is no exception which has made progress without mass education and bringing its living into the workforce. This is the on of economic development. You can do anything else you care. If you do not do these two things, just forget about the idea that you are developing. Ashok, let's move to uh, that part of your book which you have uh, you have you've said quite a lot on on democracy on uh, representative government uh, and and on governance uh one point that comes out in the book but also in your recent conversation with Karan Thapa is that uh, elitism uh has dominated uh the, the the centers of decision making in India, which is why, regardless of whether it is Nehru or it's Narendra Modi, uh, whose view on on you know secularism and democracy are very different, uh, they are both being driven by essentially an elitist worldview. We in Pakistan think that Pakistan is also uh, dominated by by elite uh, capture. And, and the decisions uh, get taken uh, uh, with that in mind. Would you do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Look, uh, the elite capture is in some ways easy to understand. Uh, these are very deeply unequal societies. And what the elite capture is is a manifesting is the deep economic and social inequalities in which it is in the self-interest of the rich and powerful to perpetuate narratives that are self-serving. And that's what elitism essentially is all about. What is interesting from an economic and sociological point of view, which has, is why does the inequality persist? Why is it that in a democratic system, there are such gross inequalities? That is what I was traveling with in this book, that India has for the most part been a democracy, I say carefully for the most part because I tend to take the view that India betrayed its democratic principles in the James Madison sense. So James Madison, as you know, wrote these famous Federalist papers in which he said that even in the representative democracy, if the Centers of power are hijacked by the elites. Then it is a self-sustaining process and it need not then filter down to people. And that is where he used the term betraying the people. And that is the subtitle of my book, Betrayal of the People. What happens is that the creation of these shiny objects in, in uh, Giovanni Nehru's case, or the, the, the steel mares, the locomotive factories, 
the Hindustan aircraft, uh, uh, these were the shiny objects. By the time you come to, um, to Rajiv Gandhi, for example, Mrs. Gandhi's period is a, is a black hole, and we can talk about that separately. Uh, Rajiv Gandhi now is a young man, a modern man. Uh, he introduces a spreadsheet through government operations, and he talks about the computer in every classroom in India. So can you see that it's in the onset of the IT revolution when he, he, he makes this statement. Bill Clinton comes to India in 1996 and he talks about how all these Indian petties are going to revolutionize education. And now we are in a world in which there is technical change occurring in so many different dimensions and some Indians have tapped into those technologies. And it becomes easy to say, well, I'm doing AI, you know. For example, this uh, very famous guy from the US whose name I'm now forgetting, Sam, Sam Ortman, I think, mm -hmm. uh, was here, was in India. And he was talking to a group of very bright young Indians who were talking about how India should be a power in AI. God bless them, you know, let them succeed. What I'm saying is that none of that makes a difference to, to the ordinary person, to the, to the, the, the farmer, for example. Let's, let's, I mean, I don't want to distract you from your line of thought, but let me just give you some numbers. India has a workforce, uh, has a population in the working age of something like 1.1 billion people. 1.1 billion are in the 15 plus age group. Out of that, 560 million are in the workforce. The rest don't even bother to say that they want to work. Out of that 560 million, 250 million are in agriculture. We must never forget that as you and I speak today, and all this Rasmukash about AI and so on, 215 million Indians are in agriculture working on ever smaller farms as successive generations subdivide their plots. Brown water tables falling in heat waves and, and extreme rainfall events in, increasing. What do you tell those 250 million people when you doubt this AI and you doubt all these modern technologies? This, this, this is a fringe. This is not even a fringe of people who, who are in this world. They, they get the attention because that's who the Financial Times and the Economist and the New York Times writes about. Right. But I want to... Take your, let me, your point is very well taken, but let me let me take you back to the idea of representative governments and, and delivering to the people, and and somehow elite capture of the government of the key decision making. Uh, we certainly know that that's true in Pakistan, and and your book now tells us that that's true in India. Uh, Bangladesh has been cited as an as an exception. Uh, because uh, social indicators in Bangladesh look much better 
than both India and Pakistan, especially those indicators concerning women. Now, why wouldn't the elite captured argument be relevant in Bangladesh? To my mind, there is one explanation, and I would like to hear from you um, your thoughts on this. In in seventy seventy one, at the time of Bangladesh's independence, uh, the government had virtually collapsed, but it had a very vibrant NGO movement which was started by people who were fighting for Bangladesh's independence and after the fighting was over, set up various non-government organizations to deliver services. And in that sense, it was a break from the standard inherited elitist structures that both Pakistan as well as now we learn India uh, continued on with. And maybe that is why uh, Bangladesh uh, uh, was able to deliver to its people and that's why on these critical metrics Bangladesh seems much more promising in many ways than both India and Pakistan. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree almost 100% with you. Uh, I would just make one cautionary remark. Uh, impressive and heartwarming though Bangladesh's achievement is and it is tied very much not just to the NGO movement, which is particularly important. I'm not taking anything away from that. But also to the fact that fortuitously sometime in the 70s, there were series of accidents, in fact, originating in case you are not aware of this, in the Royal Bank, in my in my old division in industry and energy, Yangri. Uh, brought in Deo into uh, into Bangladesh, created this bond, which then triggered this uh, response in terms of the garment industry yes. that yes. brought women into the workforce and studies of those areas where where garment uh, industries have flourished. So this mechanism that I described about more women go into the workforce, they delay the knowledge of marriage. They have fewer children, they educate their children. So that dynamic was in part also accelerated by the government production, supported critically by, as you say, the NGO community, which was very influential and which worked with the institutionalized structures of the state. Yes. The crucial difference between India and Bangladesh in terms of the role of NGOs is that in, in Bangladesh, the NGOs worked within the institutionalized structure of the state as a partner, as in as a, as a cooperating entity. In India, the NGOs are treated with hostility. This is not new. This has accelerated perhaps in the last uh, 10 years, not accidentally, perhaps certainly accidentally in the last 10 years, but it has been through right through the last 75 years. One last thing on Bangladesh, achievement is important, impressive, but it is still limited. Yes. It is still limited to garments and its social indicators, while better than South Asia, setting a very low bar because South Asian social indicators are poor. That said, you compare them with East Asia, we are nowhere close to those levels. And it's not clear to me that the Bangladesh trajectory 
is is the momentum there is enough momentum to take Bangladesh in that next year. Yes, yes. I, I think I think your words of caution are are well taken mm-hmm. and well understood, and I think uh, they're a good way to balance uh, the hypes that get created at the popular level. Uh, I think those words of caution, and then many Bangladeshis, many responsible Bangladeshi uh, analysts uh, speak in exactly the way that you have just spoken. Uh, uh, finally, uh, uh, Ashok, uh, you know, regions develop as a whole. Uh, you can't have one country in the region doing very well and the others lagging behind. Regions uh, develop as a whole. Uh, your book has clearly illustrated to many Pakistanis uh, who will read it or who will listen to this uh, podcast that uh, uh, there are underlying similarities uh, uh, between uh, between the countries. Uh, wh- how do you take some of the recommendations that you made in your book about the way forward, uh, which is on more representative government, more decentralized government? to cultivate this idea of uh, creating trust. Uh, how do you take that idea and then you, then you, uh, you know, take it to the region-wide level and not just restrict it to India? Look, uh, you know, you summarized very well where I ended my book uh, because my, my essential diagnosis of India's continued problems is a background of social norms and public accountability. The task, as I see it, is not to specify a particular policy. The inflation target in a second monetary policy as a career. But to restore social norms and accountability, you need a system of governance where the citizen and the rulers are in proximity with each other, where they can look each other metaphorically in, in each other's eyes and hold each other accountable. And that is that is sort of the idealistic notion of a democracy that represents the people and represents them faithfully in the sense it delivers, it does not betray. Right? vision where I end, and I would say it's a vision of which we see some glimpses in Kerala, is not directly translatable to a regional level. Because in fact, I'm going the opposite direction rather than to the higher level. The one statement that I will make at the regional level is that remember the regions that grew as regions, Europe and then Asia or East Asia, they did so at, at stages that were relatively advanced and or there was a very advanced anchor country. Uh, in Europe, uh, there was this so-called intra-industry trade. I don't know if you remember. Yes, yes. This yes. was in our younger days when we were on uh, learning international trade. Intra-industry trade, in today's language, would be called global value added chains. Yes. 
But uh, that notion at that time was limited to Europe. You know, you produced a part of uh, the, the best uh, example of that was the Airbus and automobiles also, yeah. and washing machines, and everything yeah. was done in Europe like that. Uh, you're seeing some of that. Uh, in, you're seeing some of that in East Asia, where Japan led, yes. became the anchor country. Uh, and now, over a period of time, many countries have joined that process. But there is no similar, there is no similar anchor in South Asia. There is no country that can create a fundamental basis for a a dynamic trade relationship within within that region. Because when all is said and done, India, despite its size, is is looking very anxiously to making its mark in global markets rather than in South Asian markets. And therefore any any sort of spillover into South Asia, in my view, in quantitative terms will always be small. And therefore, if India is not going to act as an anchor, not clear to me who else can do so. So I'm not I, I'm not holding out any hope for sort of South Asian regional economic dynamism based on some kind of long-term relationships that are self-sustaining. Let me let me press you a little bit on that point. Uh a, by talking ourselves up and creating a national hype, uh, we 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 make we make regional relationships much more contested relationships because our different national hypes uh, clash with each other's national hypes. But if you take the fulcrum of decision making at a much lower level. Uh, at the representative level, uh, at a more decentralized level, uh, maybe that combative national hype will be deflated and maybe the countries will develop more cooperative relationships. I mean, I'm, I'm just uh, airing my, 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 uh, my hobby horse and my wish. Uh, it may not, it's certainly not grounded in the kinds of pre-EU interlinkages, um, uh, intra-industry uh, interlinkages that we had started to see in Europe uh, and and the, the Japanese-led uh, following the Plaza Accord uh, investments that were complementary that came to East Asia, Southeast Asia region. Uh, so I'm not anchoring it in that, but I'm an, in, in anchoring it in a representative government model that might uh, deflate this hyper-nationalism that we see in South Asia and therefore create an environment for cooperation. Okay, you know, the sentiment you express is very heartwarming. Uh, I have no reason to not endorse it and to hope that, you know, in China it will happen. Uh, but I do not see that as an engine for growth. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, see, I see it as meritorious in itself but not as an aging upgrade. Ashok, on that uh, balanced note, <laughs> uh, let me thank you on behalf of uh, the Consortium for Development Policy Research, 
on behalf of all the, the team that has helped to put this together. And above all, thank you for sparing your time to talk to yeah. uh, a, 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 a largely Pakistani audience. Thank you very much.